This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Today, as we mark Remembrance Day, we're looking back at how the Armistice, Remembrance and the Red Poppy became a symbol of those who gave their lives in conflict since the First World War. We'll also find out how and where the commemorative poppies are made today, a hundred years since the first poppy appeal. Joining us to explain more, our audience development manager, Rachel Morrison. Hello. Hello. And Dr. Fiona Reid from Newman University in Birmingham. Hello. Hello. Very nice to be with you. There are various names, Fiona, for the commemorations that take place at this time of year. But what are the differences between Armistice Day, Remembrance Sunday and Poppy Day? Well, Armistice Day is the 11th of November. And that's the anniversary of the signing of the armistice. Now, the armistice doesn't end the war. An armistice is the cessation of hostilities. So the powers, the Entente powers um, led by France and Britain and central powers led by Germany signed an armistice on the 11th of November 1918. And that's the day that is remembered as Armistice Day. Remembrance Sunday is the second Sunday in November, i.e. the Sunday closest to the 11th of November. And Poppy Day is just a sort of popular term which could be applied to either day or to both days because we wear poppies on both of those days. I see. So when was the first Remembrance Sunday? Well, the anniversary of the armistice was commemorated every year after the war on the 11th of November until the outbreak of World War II in 1939. And at that point, really, everyone's attention shifted from remembering the dead of the last war to fighting the war that was ongoing. So instead of taking a day out of the working week in order to commemorate the dead of the Great War, it made more sense to um, hold ceremonies on the second Sunday in November, the Sunday that we now know of as Remembrance Sunday, because it would be less disruptive, be less disruptive to the war effort, for example. And then after the Second World War, this day became the day on which the dead of all wars, not just the dead of the 1914-18 war, were commemorated. And so Remembrance Sunday sort of changed its meaning. It became something much bigger, something more universal. So is there an official year that Remembrance Sunday comes into being or is it just sort of developed naturally? It's really 1939 where it doesn't make sense anymore to stop the day at 11 o'clock in a working week Mm. and people still obviously felt the need to commemorate the Great War which was still well within living memory but the focus was much more on winning the war that was clearly ongoing at the time and then after the Second World War it's very clear that the, the dead of both wars would be remembered at that point because there's no um, sort of simple equivalent in Britain to, for example, um, the Liberation Days that you might have seen in various European countries. We've got um, V-Day and V-J Day and so forth, but they uh, do something rather different. So this was the day to remember the dead rather than to remember the victories. Yes. This year marks 100 years since the first poppy appeal. How did that first poppy appeal start? Well, like many traditions, Remembrance Day practices didn't come out of the blue. It uh, grew from previous habits and customs. Um, For a long while, 
Poppies had been used as a metaphor for the war dead since at least the Napoleonic Wars, if not earlier. And poppies are bright red. They're, they're blood red. They do grow in battlefields after the soil has all been churned out. And so people had memories of blood red poppies on fields of battle for a long while. And this coincides with sort of folk beliefs associating poppies with sleep and with death. And on a practical level, before the First World War, charities had long held flower sales to raise money. So people were in the habit of putting money in a tin, collecting a little flower as a reward, and then wearing that flower in their lapels. So veterans charities continued the practice of flower sales after the wars. But what was happening was that lots of different charities were competing with each other. They were holding flower sales throughout the year. And people started to feel that there were always flower sales. And um, there were real fears that the public was just going to get sick and tired of this. In in sort of modern terms, there was a fear of um, what we would call compassion fatigue because people didn't have much money after the war. They were always being asked to give to veterans' charities. Mm. And it was becoming more and more difficult. Charities were reporting that they just weren't getting the sort of responses they need. And... It all really starts with Moina Michael, who was an American professor who taught injured veterans. She began selling silk poppies to raise funds in 1918, and she inspired a woman called Anna Guerin, a French woman who was an artificial flower maker. And what Guerin did is she set up workshops in war-damaged areas of France so that women and children could make poppies, which were then sold in France, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States. So poppies then were a way of providing work for the victims of war, and therefore money for the victims of war, and then also raising money for veterans. And it was so successful that Guerin was able to persuade Earl Haig to adopt the poppy for the British Legion's fundraising campaign for Armistice Day in 1921. And Haig commissioned a million of them from France and eight million from the UK, all of which sold. And what the British Legion did, which was sort of different from previous practices, is it brought together a number of charities. So instead of people being faced with lots of flower sales throughout the year, there's one day, there's one flower. And the whole campaign was was sort of consolidated and made much more efficient. So it's a sort of bringing together of charities, a bringing together of practices. Right. And out of, just remind us how many million were sold? We have nine million. Nine million. Um, in the first year. And by about 1924, um, they're making like 27 million. I mean, it you know, be- became really established very quickly. I mean, I mean, people responded to this in a very positive way. So three times as popular within a a few years. How much did the first appeal raise then? Well, the first appeal raised £106,000. Now, it's always difficult to work out what does that mean in modern terms. It's, as a rough guess, over £5 million in today's money and just considerably more than all of the little charities individually trying to raise money. Mm. And so it, it was it was held to be very successful, in part because it raised money, but also in part because people obviously found this genuinely meaningful. But um, in terms of the history and when the First World War actually ended, most people on the street would probably say 1918. But the answer is a bit more nuanced than that, isn't it? You, you touched on it briefly at the start. 
Yes, 11th of November 18 was the armistice. It's a cessation of hostilities and it was formally agreed to be a cessation for one month. And so it didn't end the war, but it said, we're not going to fight for a month, we're negotiating. In December 1918, it was renewed for another month. And the peace conferences began on the 18th of January 1919, and the armistice was renewed for yet another month. And then in mid-February, they said, you know, this is actually getting a bit silly, you know, and it was renewed for a year. By that stage, there was a very strong sense that the war wasn't going to continue, but it hadn't properly ended. And the Treaty of Versailles, which is really the primary peace treaty ending the war, was signed on the 28th of June 1918, exactly five years after the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which had triggered the start of the war. However, the peace negotiations continued into 1920, that there are a variety of other peace treaties which end different bits of the war, because we talk about the war, but in fact, there's a lot of different wars going on at the same time. Mm. Looking at other parts of history that fit in with this whole story, uh, we've done the story of the Cenotaph in London in a previous episode. Briefly, how does the Cenotaph fit in with these first commemorations marking the end of the First World War? Well, the Cenotaph was initially a temporary construction. It's designed by Edwin Lutyens. Um, it's now the primary national war memorial in the UK. But it was erected very quickly in July 1918. It, it was made of wood and plaster, and it was there for the Peace Day celebrations in 1919. But people did actually find it very moving, and they responded to it by leaving wreaths there, by you know, standing there for a moment, by, by paying attention there. And by the end of July, um, Lutyens was granted permission for a permanent monument on the site of the temporary one. And the permanent monument, as we know, is now made of Portland stone. And that was unveiled by the King on the 11th of November 1920. So it's very early on um, a focal point for the ceremonies. And I really think one of the most notable features about the early ceremonies around the Cenotaph was the informality of it all. Now the 11th of November ceremony is very formal, highly managed, and you can't simply walk into it. But if you watch um, Pathé footage of Armistice Day in the early 1920s, you can see that um, it's very much something for ordinary people. People queued, they had their flowers, they would go up to the cenotaph, they would lay their own personal wreaths, they would wait a few moments in silence. So it's a, a genuine remembrance practice which was instituted by the state, but the responses to it were genuinely popular and heartfelt. It was initially called Peace Day, wasn't it? Well, the Peace Day parade was slightly different. The Peace Day parade was in July 1919, and that was to celebrate the peace, to celebrate the victory. And what happened on Armistice Day and later on Remembrance Sunday was rather more solemn. It's about remembering the dead. It's about commemorating the dead. So I think there has always been a difference in Britain in particular between remembering the end of the war, the victory and the peace, and commemorating the dead. For the Peace Day Parade in 1919, would we have seen veterans, politicians and the public all wearing their poppies? 
Well, you wouldn't have seen so many poppies at the Peace Day Parade. People certainly had wreaths and flowers, and, and the American Legion had been wearing poppies since 1918, but they were not widespread in the UK until 1921. So it does take a while to actually take off, really. Yes, as I explained earlier, it's because you first have Moyna Michael, the American selling poppies, and then you had the French campaign, and then Earl Haig adopted that in 1921. So it's something that takes a little bit of time to develop and um, something which was also um, genuinely international in its origin. You've talked already about the sort of natural effects of uh, a poppy coming out of the disturbed ground of battlefields. This was captured, of course, very famously in the poem In Flanders Fields by Canadian soldier and battlefield surgeon Lieutenant Colonel John Alexander McRae in 1915. How much of a role did that famous poem have on the poppy being adopted as this symbol of remembrance of the First World War? Well, I think it's something that helps it make sense. Traditions and customs tend to work when they make sense on all sorts of different levels. And I said, there's this this long history of the poppy being very important in in British folk history. There's a long history of flowers and fundraising going together. The poppy in particular was an important symbol in terms of the remembrance of war and the remembrance of dead more generally. And McRae's poem, I think, fed into all of that. It's about all of these customs coming together to create a ritual that made emotional sense. Yes, I think that image is the fact that it's blood red. It's almost like out of the disturbed earth and all that violence, something can grow. But then it becomes this uh, colour of, of what was spilled. So what you have then is this enormous blood red field of spilled lives effectively uh, represented as a rebirth of nature which is this conflict against the machinery and violence of of war as well it's one of those um amazing motifs that is just it's just a perfect motif isn't it yes and i also wonder if there's something to do with the conflict that we all have about remembering and forgetting wars because we talk about the importance of remembering wars but actually if you remember the entire time and you're traumatized you to an extent need to forget and of course the the poppy is also associated with opium and oblivion you need to remember and you need to forget and i think that complexity is there in the poppy too and of course the whole battlefield then becomes a memory in itself when it comes into bloom every year and that is a, a symbol of and a trigger for people's memories even if they weren't around at the time it's a perennial powerful image Bringing Rachel into our conversation from English Heritage, we're shifting our attention back to the present day now, Rachel. I understand you have been working with some local partners to explore this idea of remembrance, and there's a local connection to Marble Hill House in Richmond in London. What can you tell us about that? Yes, we have been working together with partners. So as part of the Marble Hill Revived project, we've teamed up with the Royal British Legion to celebrate our fallen through erecting just under 900 poppies across the 66 acres of Marble Hill Park to commemorate those lost from our community. Each poppy was brought to remember a life that has been lost within the borough of Richmond. But since further research, our volunteers have found that each poppy actually represents more than three lives lost. As part of Marble Hill Remembers, we've also been working with a poppy factory based in Richmond. 
which is the place where all of the reeds are made for the services at the Cenotaph and various commemorations across the country are still made there today. So 900 poppies across the park there at uh, Marble Hill House. That must be some image, almost like the battlefields we've just been describing. It certainly is. They're large poppies, but they represent those people from our community. And it's a real, it's an opportunity for people to really just understand how much loss there would have been within just our small area. So that's just the local area around uh, Richmond then we're talking about, effectively. Yes, it's the borough of Richmond. Right. Are these poppies names? Do they have names ascribed to them or are they just sort of symbols, really? They don't have names, but the number was found as part of a commemoration book within the local archives. But actually, having done lots more research with the volunteers, we've actually been able to find there were far more that are in that um, initial book that we found. Wow, amazing. So you talked about this uh, poppy factory in Richmond as well, which has this good local connection as well. How many poppies does that factory actually produce per year? So it's 30 million poppies are made on the Richmond Poppy Factory site today, including the wreath we will lay during our commemorations at Marble Hill this armistice. The Poppy Factory was founded in 1922 by Major George Housen, who was a a British army officer in the First World War and winner of the Military Cross in, in 1917. George Housen's vision was to provide employment for veterans injured during the First World War, And the factory's location close to the River Thames and Richmond Park was carefully chosen to help injured soldiers' recovery and rehabilitation after the war. So the poppy is really important to Richmond and the factory is indeed just a stone's throw away from Marble Hill, our Georgian Palladium villa nestled on the banks of the River Thames, which was once owned by the remarkable woman Henrietta Howard. And the poppy factory still supports getting veterans into work through its outreach up and down the country today. How many visitors then will be able to come to Marble Hill and see the poppy field of the the 900 poppies across the park and take part in the uh, celebrations or the commemorations, I should say? Everyone is welcome to the commemorations. Uh, Marble Hill is a community park and the house is going to be open in April next year as it's going through some major renovations. But with volunteers, we've created an exhibition that is free to see in the grounds and it's next to our new cafe. And it details how Marble Hill and its 66 acre grounds were a sustainer as now the rugby fields were they were once apportioned into allotments for the community. And we've also found out about how Marble Hill was used as a shelter. In the First World War, the basement of the house was used as a public shelter. And now we've found out that in the Second World War, Marble Hill had a shelter in the grounds that supported over 300 people. So wow. over on, over that's, it's, it's amazing kind of the, the way in which Marble Hill supported our community. But over armistice commemorations, we'll not just have the poppies, but across the grounds, the five bomb sites have been marked out uh, where they fell in Marble Hill so that people can be part of understanding that heritage and our war history. Presumably these are bomb sites from World War II then? They are indeed. And there's walking tours taking place as well, I understand. So you can presume go around with a guide who'll, who'll tell you about the history? Yes, uh, our volunteers have helped us create a walking tour. It will be a members tour so people can explore those various different parts of Marble Hill's war history 
and we hope when the house is opened that uh, those walking tours will then incorporate the house so that it can share its wartime history too. You can never be quite sure about what the winter weather is going to bring. So presumably if people want to be involved in that, they'd like to bring their wellies or at least some walking boots, perhaps a brolly, some wet weather gear. Absolutely. We have landscape tours, historic landscape tours that are free every month. So uh, we do it in all sorts of weather. So everyone is very welcome to come and understand and learn a bit more about the history at Marble Hill. Do you have any other plans then to commemorate Armistice Day and Remembrance Sunday? Yes, we'll be holding a a short um, commemorative moment on both Remembrance Sunday and on the 11th with a last post and readings from the community and even our little nursery on site are going to be able to sing their own remembrance song. So if you would like to come and join, um, it's at 10.30 on both of those days, and you can pay your respects in the open air. We've mentioned, obviously, Marble Hill and its history in war, really, in the World War II and also in the First World War. Are there any other English heritage properties that have a particular link to the First World War. I mean, I I think of a previous podcast we've done on Rest Park in Bedfordshire, which was used as a hospital, for example. Can you give us any other sites that have a First World War link? Absolutely. Wartime history is important to a number of English heritage properties up and down the country. Obviously, Rest Park, as you mentioned, and that is a fantastic podcast, so I would definitely recommend anyone having a chance to have a listen to that. But also Dover Castle, where in 1940, Dover Castle's network of top secret tunnels became the headquarters for the dramatic rescue of British and Allied troops during the um, evacuation of Dunkirk. But another place which is well worth a visit is Richmond Castle, with its history of conscientious objectors, as well as Stonehenge's aerodrome, Pendennis Castle, and also, obviously, the Cenotaph, which will be the central location for the commemorations this year, which is in the care of English Heritage. Also worth mentioning for people who don't know that Richmond Castle is nothing to do with Richmond in London. <laughs> it's, the, it's the other Richmond up north. This is very true. It's far, far more north, um, but very well. it's really well worth a visit. And that uh, we've covered as well on a previous podcast. So if you're interested in catching up with that, just go through and have a search and you'll be able to find that one. A final question then to both of you. We've talked about Poppy Day, about Armistice Day remembrance, but what does the period of commemoration in November every year mean to both of you? And uh, I'll go back to Fiona first. I think it's an opportunity for us all each year to remember war not any particular war, but to remember all wars, and and not in in a glorious or in a celebratory way, but to remember the consequences of war. And if we start off with what um, many of those who had lived through the First World War thought, it was quite simply that we must remember war to ensure that it never happens again. And you, Rachel, what do you think about this period that we have every year in November? Well, I can't even begin to imagine what it would have been like to have seen those resilient, strong, bright flowers emerging from those bleak scenes of utter destruction in World War I. But I can only think that it must have given people a sense of hope. And this is what the poppy gives me today. Hope that we will always remember the immense sacrifice given by so many and hope that we can educate our next generation to know the tragedy, loss and pain that was endured so we can hope for a peaceful future. 
to know where you're going, you have to understand where you've come from. So sharing our history, whether it be Georgian or wartime, is so important to ground us and help us to understand the world we live in today. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To find out more about the history of the Cenotaph, listen to episode 15. Next week, we'll be charting the music stars with blue plaques at their former London homes. It turned out that it was more of a crash pad than anything else. I mean, they were a touring band. Paul McCartney was quoted as saying, we didn't even have a kettle there. They had a hi-fi, but no kettle. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>